All right, today's passage will be reading Psalms chapter 7. If you need a Bible, you can look in our Pew Bibles, start beginning in page 530. Today, Bruce is continuing his series, titling this sermon, A Loud Cry for Justice. So follow along with me as I read. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. O Lord, judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity, integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord of the Most High. Let's pray. Lord, we gather together today just worshiping you for you being a good God. A God who is good to us. And thank you for this passage, God, who reminds us of your authority. And the place you have in our hearts and our lives to do justice for us and for others. I pray that you would give Bruce the words to speak and our hearts would be open and willing to listen. pray this in your name. Amen. There are perhaps few things in life that are more frustrating and even more painful than being accused of something that you did not do. What others say about us matters. And particularly when one, what is said is completely wrong. In fact, it doesn't take long to read the news, even look at others around us and figure out that some people's lives have actually been destroyed by false accusations. And perhaps you are here this morning and you've actually been on the end Of that. Maybe you've been falsely accused. Things have been reported about you which are utterly wrong. And and you've been on the end of what feels like a smear campaign designed to ruin your reputation. Might be colleagues at work, it might be neighbors in the street, perhaps it's even friends on Facebook. 
you know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of someone else's bitterness or to even be excluded from a social group or to have your character misaligned and shattered into a thousand pieces. And everything within you at that moment wants to cry out, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not true. If you've ever felt like that, you are not alone. King David knew all about this sort of injustice. In fact, if you were here last Sunday, you remember that in Psalm chapter 6, David confesses that he has done wrong in that particular psalm. In that psalm, we learn that he knows he's being disciplined by God. He knows that he deserves what's happening in his life. But he also knows that he can go to the Lord and ask for mercy, and that's exactly what he does. However, this psalm in Psalm 7 is different. In this psalm, David knows that he is now in the right. He knows he has done no wrong. In fact, he has been wrong, and now he longs for God to step into his life and to vindicate him. You see, Psalm 7 is a prayer of justice. In this psalm, David now shows us how we ought to respond when we know we're in the right, but we're being accused of doing wrong. In fact, notice this big idea of the psalm. Let me give it to you up front. If you want to pull that insert out of your notes and follow along here, Psalm 7 is all about this big idea. When you are overcome with injustice... David teaches us that the righteous pray for divine justice to vindicate them. You see, in David's particular context of life, he was in a uh, deadly danger because a man named Cush had falsely accused him. Now, to be honest with you, we don't know a lot about Cush. We don't know the specific details of David's injustice. But there's enough in the heading of this psalm for us to somewhat connect the dots. The dots. In fact, the heading here in Psalm 7 says it's a meditation or a lament of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. So it seems that Cush was this unknown contemporary of King Saul, who was slandering David and probably doing so to King Saul's delight. After all, Cush came from Saul's own tribe, which was the tribe of Benjamin. And we know how Saul hated David and wanted David dead. In fact, as Saul's hatred grew for David, he actually called on his tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, and he called on their allegiance in his feud against David. And so when Saul was killed by the Philistines, and when David finally became the anointed king of Israel, it was only natural that David's chief source of opposition came from this particular tribe, Saul's tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And it seems the tribe of Benjamin, let me tell you, they held their grudge against David for a long time too. For when David's son, Absalom, rebelled against David, A man from the tribe of Benjamin named Shimei cursed David as he fled Jerusalem. And as he was fleeing the city of Jerusalem, he accused David of being a, quote, man of blood and being this scoundrel. And he even cried out 
to David, the Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. After that particular rebellion was put down, and David now returns to Jerusalem, a different man from the same tribe of Benjamin, named Sheba, led another revolt against David. While neither of these two men can necessarily be identified as the Cush of here in Psalm 7, it's easy to see how the slander in this psalm, the lies, the betrayal, the deceit, have flared up from the hostility of this particular tribe, the tribe of King Saul, the tribe of Benjamin. And now we're not sure at what point these false accusations came in David's life, Most Bible scholars believe it was during the years when David was running for his life from King Saul, who wanted him dead. In fact, we know in 1 Samuel 21, after David was running and fleeing, he's on the way out. He says to his best friend, Jonathan, who was one of Saul's sons, he says to him, what have I done? What what is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now, this sounds very similar to what David writes here in Psalm 7. In fact, David is so overcome by the injustice on his life, the injustice surrounding him with his enemy's injustice to him, that he now cries out to the Lord for divine justice. In particular, in verse 6 here, he says, Awake, my God, decree justice. The reality is, For every David, there's a Cush. And by that I mean this. Every Christ follower who is serious about pleasing the Lord will probably have a, quote, Cush in his or her life who may falsely accuse you, falsely slander you. And the question at that moment becomes, what then? What do you do? How do you respond when you are faced with false accusations? Sometimes you can clear your name. It's possible to do that. Sometimes you can protect yourself. Sometimes if you deny it, though, you can actually fan the flame. People might even assume that where there's smoke, there's what? Fire. Most of the time, there's nothing you can do. There's no way to show you are innocent. But that's what David shows us then what to do. That's the point in life when David shows us that you can turn to God and you can pray for divine justice. You do, in other words, what David writes here in Psalm, in a different Psalm, 37, verses 5 and 6, where David cries out, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Now, in this psalm here, Psalm 7, we actually see four different steps that David takes us through that we can apply in our own lives when we're being falsely accused. Four steps that we can walk through. And how I want us to go through this psalm is I want us to first see what David does and then make the application in a step for our own lives. So notice this, number one, what David does. He cries for God's deliverance. He cries out for God's deliverance. You see, David finds himself in the crosshairs of his enemy's slander and malice and deceit. 
He is, in other words, he is a victim of their deception. He's a victim of their duplicity. And his only safe zone at this moment in his life is in the refuge that God provides him. David cries out in verses 1 through 2, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest they, like a lion, tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. And again, as we have seen in these psalms leading up to this one, David is not calling out to some stranger. He is calling out to God, and he prefaces that as my God. Why? Because David knows him. He has a relationship with God. David's vulnerability yet has reached its limit. The evils of the tongue, like lies and slander and false accusations, listen, in a real way, they have now escalated to a life-threatening violence in his life. The imagery that David uses to describe this is rather interesting. He uses the language of hunting. He says his enemies are like a a ferocious lion just ready to pounce on him and to tear him apart and rip him into pieces. You ever seen a lion capture its prey? You ever seen a lion capture an antelope and kill it? Start feasting on it? I've only seen it on TV. Perhaps you've seen it on YouTube or something. But remember, David's occupation before becoming a king was what? He was a shepherd. He fought lions, he fought bears, and I'm sure he had probably seen a lion at one point in time in his life actually tear into its prey and rip it apart. And now he takes that memory and he uses that visualization and that wording and applies it to his own situation. So David says, oh Lord, unless you save me, I will be torn into pieces. I will be ripped apart by this slander. And so now we come to the very first step that we now can apply in our own lives. And that is this. When you're being attacked, when you're feeling overwhelmed, take refuge in the Lord, trusting him to protect you. You see, David runs to God the way we run to the basement during a tornado. And we here in the Midwest, we know all about that. Taking refuge in God means trusting that he can and he will protect you. It it means you're trusting that God is strong enough to shield you. He is faithful enough to guard you from real danger. God does not just merely protect. He himself is protection. In other words, David is saying we take refuge in God. Here's the application. If your ultimate refuge is not in God, anxiety will churn up inside it when you can't reverse the injustice in your life. In other words, false accusations will eat you up when you can't do anything about it. And you're now trying to defend yourself. You're now trying to do everything on your own, survive on your own, instead of taking refuge in God and releasing it to him. And when that happens, you will now be tempted to overreact in ways that are not pleasing to God. If God is not your refuge, you will be set up to lash out when someone lies about you. You might now even retaliate with gossip about your accuser and say hateful things in return, which is sin as well. 
You might even become violent in the situation. You might destroy something they love in order to get back at them. If God is not your refuge, you, in other words, you will take matters into your own hands. And more times than not, in that process, you will sin as well. If God is your refuge, though, like David... You will do what you can to defend yourself and clear your name. But since, as a Christ follower, you do believe that God is in control, you do believe that God is working for your good, you will not have the confidence to be self-controlled and to respond in godliness even when people falsely accuse you. Why? Because you have taken refuge in God. He is your defender. He is your protector. What do you do when you're being attacked and feeling overwhelmed? The first step David shows us here is to take refuge in the Lord, trusting him ultimately to protect you. Look what David does next. Number two, David claims his innocence. He claims his innocence. You see, David knows something here. He knows that Cush's words truly were false accusations. And he also knows that his own conscience is clear. So David says in verses 3 through 5, look at it. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Here's the deal. Sometimes... We can fool others, and we can fool others pretty good. But there's no fooling God. God knows our hearts. And so it's rather significant here that David claims to be innocent, but he is doing so before God Almighty. But the good thing about a false accusation, as one commentator says, is that whereas a false accusation may deceive and convince other fellow human beings, it cannot deceive God. Three times here, David uses the word if to make his case before God. He cries out to God and he says, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. In other words, if any of this is true, David is saying, then David deserves to be pursued by his enemies. He deserves to be overtaken. He deserves to be trampled. But David is confident that his integrity is true. He realizes he stands under God's holy gaze. And he knows that God will know him truly. At the same time, David is not claiming complete innocence here as if he is somehow morally perfect or even sinless. When David says, if I have done this, he's referring to the specific sin or even to the specific crime that Cush is accusing him of. It seems that Cush is was accusing David of treachery to his friends and his foes. But David was known for his integrity, especially when it came to honoring the life of King Saul. We know from 
from the Old Testament and the stories there that are recorded for us that David had multiple opportunities to kill King Saul, and he refused to do so. He said, no, that is God's job to do. I withhold my vengeance. I will not do that. He honored the life. In fact, David is so sure of his innocence that he now uh, calls on these curses on himself as a way of asserting his innocence of the accusations, as a way of emphatically denying that he has done any wrong. In this case, David was willing to put his life on the line. He was even willing to put his crown as king on the line before God. He was willing to have his reputation trampled to the ground. And he says his glory, in other words, his crown as king, laid in the dust. So what do we learn from all this? We're not kings after all, like King David, but we can certainly take this example and we can apply it to our own lives. So what do we learn? How do we take what David did here and apply it? And this brings us to our second step. When you feel like you've been falsely accused, take inventory of your own life to make sure the accusations are not true. In other words, take inventory before God and make sure you have a clear conscience. Make sure your conscience is as clear as David's was. After all, God knows our hearts. We cannot hide our hearts from God. God sees everything we do. God hears everything we say. God knows what we intend. And so ask God. Get before him, get along with him, and ask God for clarity to see your own role in that particular situation. Listen, there are times, sometimes, what feels like a false accusation is actually true. And we need to be honest about that. In fact, we need to be humble enough to face the truth even when it hurts. So by all means, let's pray Psalm 7 here like David did. But at the same time, let us also recognize that we will be exposed in the process as well. In fact, it might be a good challenge to use these verses as a starting point whenever we feel a situation or whenever we face a situation in which we think we're being wrong, we're being falsely accused and slandered. We ought to use these verses and pray them honestly. God, check my own life. We need to ask God, what wrong things have I done in this particular situation? Where have I fallen short in my responsibilities as a Christ follower here? Have I been gracious? Have I been loving to others in this situation? Have my words been unkind or hurtful as well? You see, reading Psalm 7 ought to drive us back to Psalm 6 where David knows he has sinned, but he cries out for God's mercy. And as Christ followers, listen, that is the awesome thing we get to do as well. We always can approach the throne of God and ask for his mercy. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess them. David does that in Psalm 6, and now in Psalm 7, he asks God to take inventory of his life to make sure Perhaps there is some truth here. If not, Lord, then let this be. So what do you do when you feel like you've been falsely accused? 
The second step is to take inventory of your life to make sure the accusations are not true. Now, what David does next may be surprising, if not shocking, to some of us here this morning. Number three, David calls for divine judgment. He calls for divine judgment. You see, because of his innocence, David calls for God to sit in judgment and bring him justice. David prays in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. How do you vindicate yourself? How do you get out from under false accusations? There's only one thing to do, and that is to take your problem to the Lord as David does. We can appeal to God for justice. But when someone lies about you, let's be honest, it can seem like God is asleep, right? (laughs) But the Bible is clear. God can never wake up because God never sleeps. You can check that out in Psalm 121, verse 4. And so when David asked God to, quote, wake up, awake, he's using a figure of speech. In other words, it's a dramatic way of asking God to now take action on his behalf. David knows something here. Again, he knows that his God is the judge of all the world. His great hope is that God will give him justice in his heavenly courtroom. You see, you may go to your grave falsely accused. The history books may be wrong about you. They may slander your name to the coming generations. But understand something. There is a final justice in this world, and it comes from God himself, the great judge who one day will put things right. Our God is bigger than lies. Truth will triumph in the end. Until that day of justice, let us learn from David here. Notice the third step. After submitting to God's scrutiny in your life, then boldly appeal to the Lord to vindicate you through his divine justice. Now, it's important to note that we come to this point in verse 7 only after we go through verses 1 through 5. Here's the deal. We want to rush to verse 7. In fact, in, in these situations, in these moments in our life, we are so tempted that we just pray verse 7. That's where we go. Lord, take vengeance on, your, on my behalf. No. David prays verses 1 through 5, 1 through 6 even before he gets to verse 7. Only after we have sought refuge in the Lord, only after we have fully reflected on the possibility of being in the wrong, only after we have submitted ourselves to God's word, only after we have asked God to shine his light into our own hearts, can we pray what David prayed with integrity. David's prayer may come across as very strange to us. I mean, after all, what does he pray for? Mercy on these people? No. Grace on them? No. Forgiveness? No. Not in this case. David prays for justice. 
And if that sounds a little strange to our ears, it might be because we, in our culture today, we tend to pit mercy against justice. But the God of mercy, what David is showing us, is also the God of justice. And so if we, even today, are not careful, we can so overemphasize the love of God that we can forget about that he is also a God of justice. In fact, David goes on in the next section of these verses, and he gives us a picture of God's justice. Notice the first picture, and that is God judges the wicked righteously. David seems to pray for a sample of the judgment to come in his current situation. He prays in verses 7 through 8, look at it here, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And so what David is doing here, you have to kind of picture this. He's arranging the judgment scene. And his plea for vindication is in full public view of the assembled peoples who are now gathered around the throne of God who judges all the nations righteously. In the scene that David envisions is the future judgment of God when Jesus Christ comes into his glory to judge the earth. And when David prays, judge me according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. He means, in other words, God, show me to be right in this Cush the Benjamite matter. Now, perhaps the key phrase in the whole prayer is the first line in verse 8. Look what it says. The Lord judges the peoples. That's the key Phrase, the key sentence, the key action in the whole song. The Lord judges the peoples. And it's crucial in all of this to keep in mind that David doesn't do anything himself in this song. He does not take vengeance into his own hands. And listen to me, he might well have been able to do that. Why? He's the king. But David was intent on letting God resolve the crisis. He was intent on letting God bring about the justice. And so he submits his case to God. Who alone has the ultimate right to judge? Who alone can judge righteously or perfectly again here's the deal when we try to deal with things like we often do we make a mess of them and so let the lord judge the peoples has someone said something really nasty about you like david let the lord judge the peoples We have this natural tendency to want to fight back and want to win the battle. Listen, again, let the Lord judge the peoples. And even if we don't see vindication in our lifetime, God will put things right on that final day of judgment. So let the Lord judge the peoples. But God, 
we also understand here, does not hold all of his judgment back for that final day, though. God brings justice. God brings punishment even today, too. God rewards those who do good, punishing those who do wicked. Look what David prays here in verses 9 through 13. Look at these words. He says, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Now these words, and the picture that David uses again, in his own situation prior, he uses the language of hunting. Here David uses the words, and he pictures God as a warrior. Metaphorically, God sharpens his sword. He strings his bow. He readies his deadly weapons, and he lights his flaming arrows. All of this reminds us that the final judgment is simply the finale of judgment that God is constantly handing down through history. And so we see this picture of justice. And the first picture David gives us is that God judges the wicked, and he does so righteously. But David doesn't stop there. He goes on with another picture. And we see this, that sin itself judges the wicked ultimately. David describes this process in verses 14 through 16, where he writes, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. You know what David's talking about here? This is what we could call the boomerang effect of sin. That is the picture David is giving us here. That is, there is this cause and effect nature of sin. True, sin's judgment may not be as direct as God's judgment on people. In fact, David implies that the wickedness may even take some time to develop and show itself. In other words, it has this gestation period. He uses the terminology of pregnancy. And then, after that gestation period, judgment may come in a seemingly natural manner. The principle here is this. It's what Paul described later on in, the, in, in Corinthians uh, or Galatians. I can't remember now. But that you will reap what you sow. That's the idea. Those who do evil will suffer evil themselves. God's judgment is not all of it being held back for the last day. Listen, God's judgment and his punishment for wickedness and evil, it is a present daily threat for those who will not and refuse to obey him. So here's another result of reflecting on this psalm. As we read this psalm, what it does for us is we begin to see life Pastor Chris even mentioned in the beginning of the service what we have seen horrifically even yesterday 
in these last two days with more tragedies of violence. And people are crying out, where is the justice in all of this? And so when we come to God's word, it frames our outlook. It gives us a worldview in which we can even see the news. And it helps us to see life the way God sees it with respect to evil and sin in the world. Think about what David observes here in these three verses. He pictures the wicked that are pregnant with evil, conceiving trouble, but giving birth to something that doesn't satisfy them. It doesn't bring them ultimate joy. And then coming back to the hunting images in the start of the psalm, David says the wicked have prepared a booby trap, but they have been caught in it themselves. In other words, it's like digging a hole and then falling into that hole and you now can't get out of the hole. And then most importantly, David reminds us that people, they bring this on themselves through their choices in life. God judges, yes, but make no mistake, he does not judge unfairly. God is righteous and holy. God judges, but the trouble they cause, David reminds us, it recoils back and it smacks them between the eyes. God judges, but their violence comes down on their own head. God judges, but the wicked become their own victims. And it is true, we may not always see God intervene in tragedy and in injustice directly in our lifetime. But sometimes... Listen, there is a natural outworking of events through which God exercises his judgment on the wicked. As the wicked are destroyed by their own wickedness. And if you read the news carefully, if you watch people's lives carefully, you will see that play out. So what do you do when you're being falsely accused? Listen, the third step here is to boldly appeal to the Lord to vindicate you through his justice. But when you do, you leave it in his hands. You do not take it into your hands. So how does David conclude? Number four, he closes with heartfelt praise. He closes with heartfelt praise. David closes out this psalm like he does with so many other psalms with praise and worship of his God. Notice what he says in verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Now, this is not a bribe by David. Rather, this is a promise by David to give praise to his God. And yet, here is the striking thing. It is uttered at a time when, so far as we know, David has not yet attained the earthly justice from God that he was seeking from God. Just as we have seen in the previous Psalms. Nothing has changed on the outside for David. In other words, his circumstances are still the same. Cush was still lying about him, but David had changed on the inside. Let me tell you, his heart was set on God as his righteous defender and deliverer. And this brings us to the fourth and final step we learn from David. When you are falsely accused, resolve in your heart to praise the Lord Most High for his righteousness. 
And it is important to note where the final emphasis in this whole psalm falls. Whose righteousness really matters here? The final praise is focused on whose righteousness? David's or God's? God's righteousness. Earlier in the psalm, yes, David pleaded with God to vindicate him according to his righteousness. This was not an attempt, though, when David even says that, to earn God's favor or even to justify his ways before God. Why? Because David knows that he's a sinner. He knows he's a sinner who is saved by God's righteousness, not his own righteousness. And so God's righteousness now becomes the climactic conclusion of his praise in this psalm. God's righteousness, in other words, it is our ultimate hope in this life. This righteousness includes the Lord's faithfulness to us in the midst of a fallen and broken world in which we live. Can you imagine a world where there is no final justice? Can you imagine a world where liars have the last word? Can you imagine a world where the powerful crush the weak with no consequences? And I know when you see the news, it appears that way now. But that's why we have the perspective of God's word, and we bring that worldview to it. Praise God for his righteousness. But understand this, the Lord's righteousness goes beyond our protection, beyond our deliverance from evil people in this world, and it includes our final vindication and everlasting deliverance from God's wrath on our sin. Listen, what David prays here in Psalm 7 actually points us to Christ's righteousness. The righteous one who took our sin so that according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of our sins, listen to me, the fiery arrows of God's judgment are pointed right at us. And so we must obey God's call to respond in faith and receive his righteousness before it's too late. You see, there is only one way sinners, including David, all of us here, can become righteous before God. Listen, you cannot make yourself righteous. At least not in God's eyes. We must receive righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift that God gives to those who are willing to humble themselves and admit their sin and accept His Son as their Savior and Lord. And the reason that this is so important is because the Bible tells us, folks, listen to me, that there is a judgment today That's what most of the focus was on in this psalm. But there is also a judgment day that is still to come. Here's the good news. And it is great news. Look at this. If you belong to Jesus, you can face God's final judgment with confidence. Why? knowing that his perfect righteousness is now your righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Listen, through that faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness has been credited to you, the Apostle Paul says. In other words, it's been deposited into your account, and his righteousness is now your righteousness. And if you belong to Jesus, you therefore need not fear the great and final judgment that is coming on this world. Why? Because your sins have been forgiven. They've been taken away as far as the east is from the west. And according to Revelation 19, that judgment day, when it comes, it will bring joy to those who belong to Christ. It will bring vindication for those who belong to Christ. So listen to me. We live with hope. And we live with confidence knowing that our God is a righteous God who is also the judge of the world. And so we appeal to him, we pray to him, we go to him, we go through these four steps just like David did. So praise God for his righteousness that covers you and protects you now, yes, if that be God's will to protect you and spare you for that. Sometimes he allows you to go through those trials like he did David. But most of all, God's righteousness covers and protects you for eternity And like David, when you are falsely accused, listen, we cry out to God and we trust him to be our righteous judge. So when you come, when you see the news like you did last night in these last two days, you read Psalm 7. And you let the words flow out in prayer to God. And you go through these four steps like David. And you let God be your righteous defender and judge of not only your life, but all the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the testimony of David here in Psalm 7. Lord, we know he was not a perfect man. We know he sinned, and he sinned greatly. And yet, because of your grace and mercy, you forgave him and you used him in a mighty way. Lord, may that be our lives as well. May we come to you and beg for mercy for the forgiveness of our sins. And then may we take refuge in you as our protector, our deliverer, and our righteous judge. It's in your name.